I hope that you'll be able to keep uh, your finger in the page here in Esther chapter 3. Um, I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Um, we might put a stop to that today. Uh, one of the reasons that we didn't continue with Esther after we started it uh, a couple of years ago when COVID lockdowns began was because chapter 3 is so dark, isn't it? In March 2020, we'd looked at Esther chapter 1 and 2, but then we weren't able to meet together in person like this. And when we suddenly transferred our Sunday services online, this passage, chapter 3, would have been the first one that we broadcast. Um, so for obvious reasons, we decided to pause and do something different. Um, today is a significant moment for me too, because... For almost two years, I've known <laughs> that one day we're going to have to come back to this chapter and look at it together. It is an awful part of the story. There is good I don't want to spoil it for you, but there is good news to come. But this is a low point in the story before the good news comes. So here we are, two years later, to look together at this deadly plot that begins here in Esther chapter 3. In my Bible, the heading for this chapter simply says, Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. The reason it's so dark is because when this Jew-hating general is suddenly promoted, he immediately plots to wipe out the entire Jewish race. There are so many huge themes that we could pick up on uh, here. Um, maybe, maybe we'll touch on some of it at the end if, if we have time. But I, I think what we're really and ultimately confronting in this chapter is the terrible presence of human malice and hatred in our world. All through COVID, I, I think this chapter has been lurking in the back of my mind like a dark shadow. And the questions that have been on my mind have gone something like this. Where on earth does this kind of hatred come from? And how on earth can we live, hopefully, in the threat of it? And perhaps most importantly, what has God done about it? They're, they're the kind of questions that my mind has gone to as I've been contemplating this Sunday coming for us and us looking at chapter three. So here is what we'll try and do this afternoon. Three things. First of all, we'll try and walk through this chapter together and see something of the nature of Haman's hatred. And we'll spend some time doing that first. Then I want to take us on a journey that will go backwards and then forwards. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to go backwards in time from this story 
to try and identify the destructive power that is at work behind human history. And then we'll go forwards from this story to see something about God's ultimate resolution of human hostility. So that's our plan, okay? We'll look at the chapter and then we'll go back and then we'll jump forward and hopefully that will make sense to you by the end. So first of all, let's uh, think first of all about the dark pattern of Haman's hatred in this chapter. I want to notice five things as we quickly uh, see Haman's character come to life. If that's the right phrase, come to life. Yeah, I don't know if he's coming to life. Um, as chapter three begins, Esther has been now queen for four or five years. And during that time, Mordecai has saved the king's life. He overheard a plot to assassinate him. And he got a message to Esther, who in turn told the king, but Mordecai didn't get any recognition or reward for his loyalty in saving the king's life. Instead, as we come into chapter 3, the king promotes someone else called Haman to be his number two. Maybe the king, Xerxes, did this because of the plot to assassinate him. Perhaps he's become paranoid because his circle of trust has been broken. And he responds to that. His conclusion is to consolidate imperial power in the hands of one man that he feels he can trust, Haman. It turns out, though, that Xerxes is a terrible judge of character. The first thing I want us to see is Haman's furious pride. You will know this. Some, sometimes in life, a well-judged promotion can really be the making of someone, can't it? They step up for the first time, someone sees potential in them, and they just, it seems to be the making of them, and they do a great job. But in other cases, when someone's promoted, sadly, it seems to go straight to their head. And they lose all sense of perspective and become like a mini tyrant. To underline Haman's newfound authority, the king gives an order that every person in the royal court now has to kneel and pay honour to this man Haman on his promotion. It seems to me that Haman can hardly contain his joy. And the trigger for everything else that happens in this story is that Mordecai is the one man in the royal court who says, no, I'm not having this. And he refuses to kneel and bow to Haman. Up to this point, Mordecai has been loyal to the king. He's kept his head down as a Jewish man in this empire, but it seems that this is a step too far for him and he really risks his life in making a stand maybe this is a spiritual awakening for Mordecai the author doesn't really tell us what his motive is 
Maybe he wants to make clear that he's a Jewish man and he's only going to worship God. But maybe Mordecai is the only one who can see that it's a very dangerous thing for power to be consolidated in the hands of one person. And that this actually, what the king is doing here, is bad for everyone. There is some humour here though, because Haman seems to be so mesmerised by all the adulation that he receives, that he doesn't notice Mordecai refusing to bow, and he has to be told by his staff. You, you can imagine Haman wafting through the crowd, smiling and waving and receiving all the adulation. But he doesn't notice Mordecai. I want us to note, I want us to note that the underlying root of Haman's hatred is his pride. And it seems to me there are two sides to this coin that we might call pride. On the one hand, there's a sense in which pride always says something like, do you not know who I am? That's one side of the coin of pride. But when you flip it over on the other side of the coin, pride is also saying, who on earth do you think you are? (laughs) That's the two sides of the coin of pride, isn't it? Do you not know who I am and who do you think you are? Pride is always self-centered. It causes us to compare and measure everything around ourselves. Pride gets angry and disappointed at the lack of respect we think we deserve and it also gets bitter and jealous when other people seem to get it instead of us. Pride is the ugly inward root that comes before both anger and sulking. Pride never ever grows into love for others but so often it develops into hating them. But isn't it so destructive and brittle? Haman here gladly feeds off all of this praise, but when one guy, one random nobody, refuses to bow, it seems to completely destroy him. Isn't it brittle? By the end of verse 5, Haman is absolutely furious. The second thing I want to highlight in Haman's hatred is something that I want to call vindictive violence. There have been some massive overreactions in history, in human history. I came, I came across one great story. Well, it wasn't probably great for the people involved in it, but it's a, it's a massive overreaction. Apparently in 1827, the then leader of the country, Algeria, dramatically 
pointed a fan at the French ambassador. I don't know whether he was a dramatic person, but he pointed his fan and said, get out of our country. Three years later, the French claimed that this ambassador had actually been struck in the face. And they considered now that this was a a most terrible insult to the honour of the French Republic. And so they sent hundreds of ships to Algeria and they ended up occupying the country for 132 years till the 1960s. Apparently this became known as the fan incident. (laughs) Don't ever point your fan in the French ambassador's face. You'll, you'll suffer for 130 odd years. Great over, look it up, the, the great overreaction in human history. Well, here we have what we might call the Mordecai incident. And the striking thing about it is Haman's huge overreaction. Just look at verse 6. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned. The idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people. He scorned the idea of just punishing him and thought to himself, I'm going to have them all. I'm going to have them all. It's almost laughable if it wasn't so deadly serious, isn't it? This perceived insult becomes the trigger for a pre-planned genocide. His furious pride leads to the most awful, vindictive violence. Haman's first thought is, the world would be a better place if they were all dead. And the terrifying thing, of course, is that Haman now has the power to follow through on that horrible, hateful instinct. The third component here of Haman's hatred is something that I want to call deep superstition. In verse 7, Haman and his team begin to plot We're not told anything about Haman's spiritual or religious beliefs, but what they do as a team is they meet to cast lots, or it could mean to roll dice. And what they're essentially doing is rolling dice to pick a lucky day to destroy the Jews. It made me think this. Perhaps... There is something about evil that, that, that always seems to be superstitious and insecure. There's something about hatred that is restless and paranoid. And it almost feels here as if Haman knows that somehow there are invisible forces at work And he desperately longs for those forces, whatever they are, to be on his side. But the way he tries to achieve that and engineer that is via chance. Fate is what he believes in. They happen to roll the dice in the first month of 
the year, which would have compared to our month of April. So they roll the dice in month one, and you can imagine this little group with vicious hatred in their eyes, just praying and longing for it to land on May or June so they can sharpen their knives and get on with it. What happens, unfortunately for them, they roll the dice in April and it lands on March. And they were thinking, oh, shucks. We've got to wait a whole year now to murder the Jews. The word here for lot or dice is the word pur, P-U-R. And the Jews celebrate the festival of Purim. That's where they get the name for the feast they celebrate. This would be like us in English calling this story dicey as an ironic insult to Haman to poke fun at him. He tries to roll a dice, he relies on fate and it shoots him in the foot because actually God is in control, not random chance or fate. There's an old proverb in the Bible that says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Despite Haman's deep superstition, this crisis will come to a head in God's time, not Haman's or his cronies. Fourthly, I want you to see another component to hatred often is, is the idea of malicious lies. In verse 8, Haman goes for an audience with the king. And his aim is to get Xerxes to agree to this brutal massacre. But of course, he can't just saunter in and ask the king to approve mass genocide. And the point here is that Haman has no qualms at all about telling lies. First of all, notice in verse 8 that he doesn't say who these people are. He just casually mentions a certain people. Isn't it so much easier to do damage when we dehumanize other people and talk in vague terms? But then Haman seems to bring in a truth followed by a half-truth followed by an outright lie across verses 8 and 9. It was true that the Jews were dispersed and scattered across the empire. This was true of many other people groups as well. And it was partially true that they had different customs. So they did. Many other groups in the empire also had their own distinctive practices. They were allowed that freedom. But Haman subtly implies that this unnamed group is different to all the other different groups and therefore sinister and dangerous. And then the lie comes. Finally, Haman states that this unnamed people group were disloyal and therefore a grave threat to the empire's security. 
If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. There was no evidence at all that the Jews were disloyal. And of course, we know that Mordecai has been working loyally as a civil servant. He's even saved the king's life. And don't forget, too, that Haman is also unknowingly playing with fire here because he has no idea that the queen herself is actually Jewish. What is frightening in all of this is that Haman can make this out to be some kind of no big deal kind of issue. He saunters in. He doesn't even name the Jews. He implies that the king need not worry. Haman has it under control. Don't trouble yourself, O king. There's a threat, but I'll get it sorted. The empire will be safe. Notice in verse 9 that Haman even offers to pay for this with what is a huge sum, actually, Maybe he plans to do it by plundering Jewish property once the Jews are all dead. In verse 10, Xerxes foolishly takes off his royal signet ring and gives it to Haman, who is now described as the full-blown enemy of the Jews. And then Haman wastes no time in having this brutal decree written up. On the 13th day of the 12th month, all Jews, old and young, men and women, were to be destroyed and their goods plundered. Haman has this translated into every known language and postal riders are dispatched speedily to deliver this horrible death sentence across the whole empire. Lastly, I want to highlight something here that I, I want to call zero conscience. There is a really disturbing footnote at the end of this chapter where the author tells us that the king and Haman sat down to drink while outside the city of Susa was bewildered. Imagine being a Jew across this empire in the 12 months after this. The fear and suspicion, the unprovoked attacks that it would lead to. And in this vast empire, there's nowhere to flee to or to hide or to emigrate to get away from it. There is bitter anguish and shock and tears outside while the two most powerful men in the empire, in, in our modern, they're having a pint. They don't care. It is really terrifying, isn't it, how such hatred justifies and rationalises itself. 
One thing that's worth noting here is how easy it was for Haman to get Xerxes on board. And we, we could say it like this. Haman is the one who is deliberately and actively wicked. He tells lies. He offers bribes to get it done. But the plan is clear and it's all his own work. Haman means to do serious harm. On the other hand, we might say that Xerxes is carelessly and passively wicked. He doesn't ask any questions. Surely the first job of a king is to govern with justice. I, I want us to notice here that the reason evil things happen in human history is because there are both Haman's who deliberately and wickedly plot it, and there are Xerxes who silently allow it. What a journey, then, we see in this chapter. It's so helpful to see that the Bible neither glosses over or sensationalizes these realities. Not everyone is a Haman, of course. But I think we can all see something here of the seeds of human hatred, the roots of it, and what it can grow into if it isn't checked. And so chapter 3 ends with God's people in a thoroughly hopeless situation. Their fate is sealed. And yet, despite the anguish, there is a hint of hope, a sliver of hope, because we know that the Queen, Esther, is Jewish. I don't want to spoil it for you, but we will soon see Haman's hatred suddenly and irrevocably and rightfully crushed. You'll have to come back another week to see that. Now, I said that secondly, we would journey back. And um, so here's our second point, the destructive power behind human history. It turns out that there is so much more to this conflict than just Haman and Mordecai. This story is actually one episode in a much larger cosmic battle between good and evil that has been going on since the beginning of the world. One thing that should alert us to this, I think this is very poignant, that although the Jews are living peaceably within this empire, isn't it striking that when Haman's decree is published, it does feel like something dark was waiting to be released? Do you, do you get that? There must have been a lurking animosity there already that Haman's wicked plot seems to fan into flame. And it seems shocking that this, this horror... It, it 
seems to be simmering just a little bit under the surface. There's something dark behind this going on. But the author also explicitly points us to a bigger story when he gives us the names of these men. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we noted how Mordecai was introduced in chapter 2 and his Jewish pedigree was underlined. And in fact, in Mordecai's case, his tribe, Benjamin, and his family line, the son of Kish, deliberately connects him to the very first king of Israel who was called Saul a few centuries before. That's where Mordecai's pedigree is. But now in this chapter, notice in verse 1 that the author introduces Haman, son of Hamadatha, and he calls him an Agagite. It turns out that Agag was the king of the Amalekites at exactly the same time that Saul was king of the Israelites. So the author, it's no coincidence that the author introduces these men and it turns out that their conflict here actually goes back to two rival kings. Now, this... I've been struggling with this because I've got to do this in like half an hour. We could spend like all afternoon talking about this. I'm trying to like be very quick. This takes us back in the Bible a few centuries to another book in the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you're taking notes, you can make a note of that. 1 Samuel chapter 15, where God tells King Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites. And Saul's failure to do that actually cost him the throne. But why was God keen for Saul to wipe out the Amalekites? Well, the answer to that takes us even further back in the Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. And that's where the Israelites are rescued from slavery in Egypt. You, you, Moses brings the Israelites out of Egypt. And as this group of maybe a million refugees makes their way slowly through the hot desert, the Amalekites violently pounce on them in an unprovoked attack when they're at their most vulnerable. With God's help, the Israelites actually win a fierce battle with the Amalekites, but God never forgot this Amalekite violence against his beloved people. The spirit of the Amalekites was brutal. Instead of helping the Israelites in their moments of weakness, they, they were like terrorists. They, we're told in Deuteronomy that they, they attacked the back of the line and they cut down the elderly, the sick, the children at the back of the line. It was a display of might and greed against defenseless refugees. So it's no coincidence that in Esther, Haman here is described as an Agagite. In other words, he's an Amalekite. And he seems to have exactly the same spirit 
of power and greed and pride and violence that the Amalekites had. The author is making a point here that throughout history, there have always been those who hate the people of God. And the author is showing us what Haman's hatred looks like. We've seen something of that in this chapter. But the author is pointing to a malice behind this history that has even deeper roots. There, There are some dark powers here at work that ultimately hate God and express their hatred by hating his people, by seeking to ruin God's creation, undermining his good plans, and in particular attacking his own beloved people. The Bible doesn't give us every detail of how this evil came into being. But it does hint at it being rooted in pride. Evil was not born because God created it. It's a great mystery in this. Many people believe good and evil, the yin and the yang. From a biblical point of view, God didn't create evil. But one of the most glorious and beautiful and powerful spiritual beings that God created, one day turned. The proud thought arose in that creature's heart, I deserve more credit. I could be a God. This creature maybe looked in the mirror and thought, I'm powerful and beautiful. In fact, actually, I wish that others could worship me instead of God. This originally glorious being is the sad and miserable character that the Bible identifies as Satan. Despite his incredible beginning, he has become a devil who hates and despises God and has become this powerful, malignant force that makes war on God. He is that ancient snake who poisoned the Garden of Eden out of pure spite. And it all started with the ugliness of pride. And he has been a liar and a murderer ever since. All of the five things that we noted from this chapter about Haman's hatred are true. And the brutal violence of the Amalekites before that was true. But all of these horrors are also a miserable reflection of this malignant and personal evil that lurks behind human history. Spreading poison, vandalising God's creation, slandering God's goodness, 
when you think about the story of Esther, actually Haman's attempt to destroy the Jews is not just an example of ethnic hatred, as awful as that really is. It's much more than that. It is a satanic attack on God's ancient promises to redeem the world. Think about this. If the people of God are successfully totally wiped out here, all of God's earlier promises that the Messiah would come through them would also be destroyed. Haman's deep hatred here has very ancient roots. Now, thirdly, I also said that we would look forward from Esther. And the reason for that is that this same dark spiritual hostility is still in play when Jesus himself comes into this world. The climax of this spiritual battle is actually the cross. When the good and generous three-in-one God who created all things comes into his creation, taking on human flesh in the person of his son, instead of being received and welcomed and embraced, he's rejected and despised and ultimately murdered. The disturbing and dramatic pinnacle of human hostility is really the cross. Never before or since the cross was such great and pure and true love met and greeted with such determined hatred and violence. But incredibly, the cross is also the resolution of human hatred. In one sense, this is an ancient conflict between the true and glorious Son of God and an imposter who wished he was the Son. The devil who wished everything revolved around him instead of Jesus. Satan is the bitter wannabe who craves the adulation, but Jesus is the real deal who is worthy truly worthy of praise here's the comparison one of them only knows power and might and brute force he's essentially trying to steal something that was never his in the first place and he only knows how to grasp and grab power and trample on anyone who stands in his way he's proud and selfish and angry and hateful the Amalekites were his children and men like Haman are his protégés but in the end this hostility takes Jesus all the way to the cross and Satan really believes 
that in this moment, might has won as Jesus dies. But actually, the truly glorious son wins, not by brute force, but by humility and generosity and unselfishness and kindness. Jesus wins not by causing others to suffer, but by suffering in their place. Jesus already has all the power, but instead of grasping it, he hands himself over to be crucified so that sinners and rebels like us can be eternally saved by him suffering the death that we rebels deserve. The cross is the pinnacle of human and satanic hostility. And yet, at the same time, it's the pinnacle of God's glorious love for those who reject his righteous and good rule. The cross is where the full expression of human hatred comes face to face with God's towering love. Now, I, I had all kinds of thoughts on where to land this talk. <laughs> Part of me wanted to remind you about the continuing reality of the persecution of God's people in this world. For example, I was reading this week a new report from an organisation called Open Doors which tells me that across 76 countries today more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith which is an increase of 20 million since 2021. Think about that for a moment. 360 million believers suffering high levels of extreme persecution. This is huge, and it's good for us to be reminded of the kind of world that we live in. We should pray for and seek to support those who suffer deeply because of such hatred and violence. But the truth is, and you, you know now that this has been two years in the making. Over the last couple of years, there's one passage in the Bible that has kept coming back to me again and again. And it's found in the New Testament in a letter that Paul wrote to a colleague of his called Titus. And the striking thing with this little passage, I'll share it with you in a second, is that Paul was actually a Haman. He knew in his own heart what he had been like before he met the risen Christ. All the same seeds of pride and hate and anger were in his heart too until he met Jesus. 
Here is Paul's assessment of his own life. And it will come up on the screen here. This is what Paul says. I, I love his humility here. At one time, we too, we too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, but, when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Isn't that glorious? If you are not yet a Christian, I want to invite you this afternoon to change sides in this great conflict. I want to invite you to come and trust in and follow this Jesus. But I also want to encourage you to count the cost. Because following Jesus in this world will be costly and difficult. But in him is found true life and true and lasting love. And to those of you who are following Jesus, I want to remind you this afternoon, I'm really sorry to have to remind you this afternoon that we're in a battle. We need brothers and sisters to resist the temptation to think that the gospel is some kind of heavenly comfort blanket that will somehow take all of our problems away. In his book on Aston, Mike Cosper writes these words, the Bible shows us a saviour who suffered. And apostles who were sick and jailed and beaten and shipwrecked and publicly humiliated. The life the Bible offers is not one safe from the tragedies of the world, but one in which God suffers with us and accompanies us through our hardships. Friends, one day, the battle will be won. And every single tear will be wiped away. But it's not yet. There are evils to resist. There are sins to renounce. And there are difficulties to endure. Have courage. Cling to Jesus. In him you are loved and secure and you'll make it 
to the very end. But before you get home, there are battles to fight in God's strength with faithfulness and with patience and with courage. Let's uh, pray, shall we, before we sing together. Father, we, we do thank you once again for your amazing word. And as we said, we thank you that it doesn't gloss over these realities or indeed sensationalize them. Father, we realize that the Bible speaks truth. This is the world that we live in. We thank you that you have not left this world without a saviour. We thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus into this broken, often violent world to redeem it, to save it, to rescue us from the power of darkness and evil. Father, we pray that you would incline our hearts, turn us, Lord, from the darkness to the light, from grasping to giving. Father, would you, would you lift our vision and help us to see the glory, the generosity, the beauty of your Son, the Lord Jesus and would you help every one of us to put our hope in him we pray this for our own good and for your glory we pray in his name Amen